Almost two years ago to the day, Dr. Kelly Brogan agreed to be a guest on my little podcast, which only had about 55 episodes at the time. I was completely honored that she took time with me back then to talk about her new book at the time called A Mind of Your Own. This was a revolutionary book, it still is, about how the pharmaceutical industry and medicine in general is made up of lies and how she talks about in the book how you can get off of these medications, birth control, antidepressant, all these things that you don't necessarily want to be taking. And she has a response for those who say, I do want to be taking these, so stop telling me what to do. But I loved our episode back then, so take a listen to episode 61 from February of 2018 if you'd like to get the story on a mind of your own. But Dr. Brogan is back in this episode today, and she's discussing her new book called Own Yourself. And as always, I extremely appreciate her conversation, her perspective, and the truth that she tells in her story and her actions and her practice of medicine. She talks about in the episode how she has not written a prescription since I believe 2010, and that is incredible. So I hope you all enjoy this episode with Dr. Kelly Brogan. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Today's guest is Dr. Kelly Brogan. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's great to be here. So you know, this is exactly almost two years since the last time I talked to you on the podcast, <laughs> like to the day. I love it. So I love funny. it. Not, not much has happened in those two years, no, so it's fine. Nothing. You've just been <laughs> been hanging out, eating bonbons. Exactly. And I'm sure bonbons are just part of everyone's perfect health plan. <laughs> Exactly. Well, welcome back. It's great. I appreciate you taking time to talk about your new book, Own Yourself. Um, So I just want to run through, I think if anyone wants to go back and listen, it was episode 61 that Dr. Brogan was on. And we're now in the 180s. So I've been doing this a while too. at this point. The evidence. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But give the listeners just a quick rundown of kind of how you started practicing medicine and what, how that changed for you. Sure. So I guess the, the kind of nutshell overview is important contextually because I have had the privileged experience of living on both sides of the belief aisle when it comes to conventional and holistic medicine. So I was trained completely conventionally, believed so much in, you know, the pill-based model of uh, psychiatry that I specialized in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women. Uh, And it was not shortly, you know, it was really probably uh, six months in or so to that specialization that uh, something started to shift (laughs) beneath my feet. And I was pregnant at the time. Um, Fast forward to about, you know, 10 months postpartum, and I was diagnosed with my first 
health condition ever after having lived completely unconsciously uh, with regard to my own embodiment. <laughs> and, you know, um, my experience of Hashimoto's thyroiditis was basically like, I don't want to take a pill for the rest of my life. Also, I, I had a lot of patients who were on, you know, medications like Synthroid, and I knew that they never quite felt right. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of stared down the barrel of that gun and, and pushed it away. And it was through engagement of naturopathic practices, um, and ultimately, you know, development of my own quite basic, uh, protocol that I, um, put my illness into remission. And around that same time, I was given a book called anatomy of an epidemic by investigative journalist, Robert Whitaker. And it was just the perfect alchemy because I was, you know, already confronting a lot of the limitations of my training and ready and open to see a new perspective. I had ha had the experience already of watching what could otherwise have been a chronic and recidivistic autoimmune condition go into full remission on paper. I could see it with my eyes, you know, and so I read this book that basically indicted um, the consensus practices around uh, psychiatry and uh, worked through 16 studies I had never come across in my very arduous training to put forward the hypothesis that actually our treatment is what is driving psychiatric epidemics of disability the world over. Right. And after I finished that book, I put down my prescri prescription pad for good. I, uh, since 2010, have never, not one time ever, uh, started a patient on uh, prescription medications, and I dedicated my practice to what is called de-prescribing, so helping uh, women come off of medications um, safely, and it's through that process that I've learned about the archetypal realms of the dark night of the soul and what initiation to the self uh, really looks like. And of course, I went through my own parallel process of um, kind of a multiple <laughs> spiritual rebirths um, that have helped me to gain much intimacy, you know, with, with that space. Right. I mean, you've lived it. So you're like, I know yeah. what this feels like. I know what I'm talking about <laughs> on every level. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's really my ultimate credential. You know, right. I can kind of get my toe in the door with my MD and all the rest of it. But the truth is that I, I understand the anatomy of ego dissolution and what it is to adult, you know, not because I, I've completed the process by any means, uh, but because I've really walked the rooms of, of that structure. And, uh, and I know that my biggest work every single day is simply learning how to develop the strength and resiliency to, to, to feel my feelings mm. and, and not need the world to be different in order for me to access, uh, existential okayness. You know, and, and that this is want to feel our feelings, Dr. Brogan. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> I know it. I know that. And and we have no experience with it either is part of the problem. You know, when we start to feel fear or shame is a huge one. Uh, when we start to feel, you know, rage, it it demands an interlocutor, right? Like it demands another to discharge upon, um, to insist on remediation around, you know, it, it is, um, immediately this experience of separateness. And, you know, what I have come to understand is that these, 
this emotional terrain is ultimately the most powerful form of empathic connection. You know, if we learn how to work with these emotions, we come into a territory of what it is to be human that decimates all of the seeming divides, right? So I, I'm not a huge believer in, you know, female pain versus male pain versus black pain versus Asian pain. You know, I, I do believe that grief when felt is a universal frequency, right? And the story around it and the narrative is secondarily injurious and secondarily difficult for sure. But the simple resonance of the emotion um, without the story can be a very sacred ground if we just learn to work with it. But it takes tremendous um, you know, dedication to the practice. And I believe it takes a physiologic foundation of um, neurobiological health in order to even have a, have a, a prayer, right. you know, at navigating this territory. And where does this, I mean, you see kids, you see babies, they don't have any problems showing rage, frustration, <laughs> anger. Right. And then, you know, we're told be good, be quiet, be like, where do we lose the ability to express our emotions? Is it just society? Is it family? Is it family? I know me growing up, I was just not to make waves. And I know mm-hmm. where it started for me. Like, it was just like, your feelings do not need to be expressed. Carry on. <laughs> exactly. And you are not alone, right? Yeah. Because I have actually never met anybody who um, who doesn't have this, um, this experience. And I think you hit the nail on the head that it begins in early childhood. Some argue uh, developmentally zero to seven. Um, there is an experience of the conditions for love. Right. So you learn from your primary caretakers um, or caregivers, um, you learn when you feel their love and when you feel either the withdrawal of their love or worse. Right. Violence or uh, violation of some kind. And so you begin to curate behaviors and learned patterns that will help you to live in a safer world. Right. And this curation becomes your personality. Right. And it it serves typically up until, you know, our early 30s, mid 30s, when we begin to have this sensation that the mask is slipping. Right. (laughs) And that's where many of us relate, you know, to this imposter syndrome. Um, For me, it's uh, I call it the hologram. Right. So it's it's this sense that I am projecting a huge hologram of my idealized self to the world. Right. And, and my real small self um, is like crumpled up inside, you know, somewhere hidden. And the truth is that you can see my holographic self all you want and love her all you want. I don't feel anything. You know, that's why, you know, I've written New York Times bestselling book and have all these credentials and have all the, these achievements and healthy children and blah, blah, blah. And the moments that I actually experience love are when I you know, I'll do like an eye gazing exercise with a stranger, you know, or, <laughs> or when I, you know, have, um, the ability with my daughter to allow her to feel her feelings. And I know that I, I muscled through that oh, spiritually, yes. you know, and I really did it. It's, it's in these little moments where I am with my small self and I honor her. Right. And, and so that is, um, 
it's kind of a crisis, I think, that we all begin to encounter at some point. And I think collectively, we are um, walking in this space together. There's a zeitgeist of awareness that the curation of the elements that are idealized, um, that we thought would get us experiences of love and safety, are now feeling hollow. Yeah. And what is it to be vulnerable and authentic and show up real and bring that small self? So bring all the sides of you, the lazy, you know, loser who's stupid, who is late all the time, who does things that are embarrassing, you know, who is maybe even violent or aggressive, you know, all that so-called shadow material when brought out into the light of awareness, self-awareness um, can become you know, the seed for your greatest power, because now you're, you're not outsourcing, um, that energy into curation any longer. You're owning it, right? You're saying, yeah, I've noticed, like, I really struggle with this and I would have been too embarrassed to tell you. Cause I thought maybe you would judge me or you would stop loving me. And you know, when you're a child and, and you feel the loss of love from your mom, that is an existential threat, right. you know, you're it's die. not just like a bad day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So the wiring, um, made a lot of sense until it didn't. And then it's time to walk the path, path of, of initiation to adulthood. And is this where you traditionally, or you probably still see the, the start of the crisis, the women that not necessarily women, but I know you treat a lot of women, right. but who come in, they've got a couple kids, they've got a career, they're doing it all, nothing particularly well. And they come and they're like, I'm not happy. I mean, and, and th that's when a lot of times you see traditional medicine swoop in with antidepressants or anti-anxiety. I mean, how do you wrangle <laughs> that crisis to say, hey, own your feelings and let's start there? I mean, yeah. how do you take someone who thinks, oh, my God, I'm broken? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for asking that, because it's that belief that something is wrong with me that so pervades, uh, you know, the, the modern uh, self-conception, you know, it's so um, seemingly common that I think it's part of how the medical system has the capacity to capture those who are vulnerable, yeah. right? Is that this sense that something is deeply wrong with me. And then when you sit in a doctor's office and they have the white coat and the special language and, you know, all of the authority that you give them and society gives them, right? And they say, you know what? You're right. Something is wrong with you. <laughs> it has a name and an ICD-10 code. And here's what you do about it. You can manage yourself into seeming normalcy with these medications. So be a good patient and take them. You know, and it feels, I've been told by so many of, of my patients, because I do not offer them this experience. So I've been told that it really felt good. It felt validating. Yes right? Uh, it, it, for a brief window, um, until the overpromising was revealed, right? Until it became clear that there was no normalcy or okayness, um, to be found through, you know, this, this experience of themselves. And of course that's because every time you open that pill bottle, every time you show up to your doctor's office, trying to um, get their assessment of how you're doing, right? You are, uh, fundamentally reinforcing that belief, that something is wrong with you. And as long as you carry that belief around, you will live in victimhood and your, again, your neurobiology will be consistent with that. So that when we feel dependent and helpless and we are waiting for the other shoe to drop, 
right? We, we don't have an intimate relationship with uncertainty. We are just guarding against it at all times. Um, you can't heal, right? You can't heal. So the mindset is very, uh, very critical. And I'm often told that, you know, <laughs> when I run my mouth and <laughs> what I, what I sometimes have, um, you know, I guess the experience of offering others is this kind of reminder that there's another way and that maybe there was like some really gross misunderstanding at the root of their initial diagnosis and prescribing that of course then often leads to poly prescribing and, you know, one anti-anxiety med in a crisis 15 years later is like an anti-seizure med and, and an antipsychotic and a sleep med and two antidepressants, you know, this is very common. Um, so, you know, this is a, this is a hero's journey. And what I like to remind folks of is that it begins with the basics, right? It begins with chopping wood and carrying water. And that's why as much as that's the general framing, um, I am a big believer in starting with, um, you know, sending the, the nervous system a signal of safety through a lifestyle, um, you know, approach that's one month long. Uh, and that's my, you know, that's my, this protocol that's in, in refined version in my latest book on yourself. And we have an online version of it, uh, vital mind reset. Um, and I have seen that it works, right? So it, it is, um, this foundation physiologically for you to quiet all of the white noise that otherwise can lead to excessive experiences of anxiety and, uh, you know, poor concentration and, um, difficulty, you know, sort of, uh, tracking, right. um, the, you know, the, the logistical elements of your life and, and low energy or erratic energy or addictive patterns with food and drinks and, you know, all of this, um, leaking of energy gets kind of stopped up. The container becomes really strong and that's when it actually turns into a crucible where all of these places that you thought you needed to be ashamed of all the ways in which you thought you were broken, all of the aspects of yourself that you um, thought were sure evidence that you're sick actually become the the source of your newly re reclaimed power. And, you know, I've seen this because I call artists the canary in the coal mine, right? So they are the most susceptible, I believe, um, to the very real responses on the part of their bodies, minds, and spirits to everything that's wrong in the world today. And they're also the most likely to be labeled as mentally ill because these sensitivities are not acknowledged by the Guild of Psychiatry, right? In no way does psychiatry acknowledge that there's something off <laughs> about the way that we are living. And so instead it's a problem with you. So if you're an exquisitely sensitive being, you're going to express your sensitivity through symptoms. Mm -hmm. And if you are in a framework that misapprehends uh, the relevance of context and environment, you know, then you yourself will be held responsible for those symptoms as a reflection of something wrong with you. And so this reclamation process is really big, you know, it's about your, your creative life force and how that was, you know, turned on its head as something of a liability. And instead it's actually where you draw um, your gift from. I love how you call it a hero's journey. I mean, I had a very similar experience. I mean, I've had a lifetime of, you know, quote, depression and sadness and anxiety, and I drank for 20 years solid. But I remember going, my kids were both two under two, and I was driving down, I'll, I'll just remember the street forever, and I went yeah. to the doctor, and I said, I can't take this anymore. I must be going crazy. 
and they gave me some medication and I was no longer angry, but I was sad (laughs) after I took the medication. And I thought, you know what? I used to have an explosive temper and now I just cry all the time. Neither of these make any sense to me. I've got to figure out another way. And, and I thought, I think back to that moment all the time because I could have gone back to the doctor and said, give me something else. This isn't working. And it could have just been this 10 year long rabbit hole. Yeah. And instead I thought this is just not working at all. And, and I went on my hero's journey, my yes. health journey, which has been a decade. But what do you say to people? And I know you get this because I've followed you long enough who say, you don't know what you're talking about. I need these drugs. These keep me alive. They've saved my life. What do you, how do you respond to that? I say then enjoy, enjoy them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and why are we in dialogue? You know, I really, it is really how I, I feel, you know, when I started this, even when I wrote a mind of your own, um, I was really pissed and I had a, a level of righteous indignation that was, you know, burning inside of me day and night. And part of it was because, you know, the blood, sweat and tears that I had put into that training, which came with no small amount of, of, of trauma, really, right, right. um, to, to have learned like a pile of, of what I understood to be lies, uh, felt like a violation. I felt betrayed. And part of that was, you know, really I was coming into this kind of adolescent comportment towards the medical system as a parentified entity, which is what we do. We parentify all of these authorities outside ourselves, whether it's the principal at your children's school, you know, or the government or your doctor down the street, we project onto them the qualities of, of a good parent. And we want them to adhere to that and take care of us and, you know, be honest and truthful and guide us, you know, and when we, we see that actually everyone is working from their own programs, um, you know, doing what makes sense to them and nobody's actually here to do anything for anyone else except for what makes sense in their own internal reality. Right. It's, it's when we finally confront that, that there's a, this, this, this sense of, of having been betrayed. Right. So was I betrayed by the medical system? No, I just woke up to what I wasn't willing to see formerly, which is the extreme bias that informs, um, the transfer of information. Uh, and the rage that I felt, um, led me to believe that I knew what was best for everyone and that not a single person ever should take these medications. I couldn't understand why anybody would because of what I learned about the untold risks, um, beyond what you'll hear in a, you know, a Zoloft commercial, um, around dependency, you know, because I got into the trenches with women who'd been on medication and came to a point in their life where they wanted to come off. And the kind of hell that I witnessed, uh, I felt would be unethical to participate in to any degree as a prescriber. And that's why I never prescribed again. Um, so, you know, it felt like if you knew that, how would you ever touch this? Right. Or if you knew the, the true science around the seeming efficacy of these medications and how much of it rides something called the active placebo effect, would you ever think that it would be worth the risk that maybe on a, on a Russian roulette understanding of risk stratification, you might be the person who, you know, strangles your own child after three weeks on Paxil for routine work related stress. Right. Would you ever right. take that right. prescription to CVS? I doubt it. Right. So I thought, you know, 
if you have the information, you would never choose this. And I still believe that. I'm still very passionate about informed consent. At this point, I have no idea what's right for anyone else. I have no idea. I can't advise, you know, I can barely guide. I can only provide the information that if I were in a position of struggle and suffering, I would want to have so that I could make an, an informed decision for myself. Uh, because there are some instances where the information comes too late. Uh, and, and you know, not that there are any mistakes, really. I don't believe that there are any um sort of random <laughs> bad happenings. I do believe that, you know, we have these experiences in service of our, our growth, but if it's working for you, wonderful. I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, I am speaking to those who are interested in another way. Right. Right. Who want to, to feel differently on their own in their own body. Exactly. Yeah. So how do we own our body? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, again, I think the, you know, in my online program, the first two weeks are just mindset like brainwashing. <laughs> so a lot of it is this sort of re-education, a reconditioning around the ways in which we have outsourced our agency. Right. Um, you know, just think about gynecology, right? Because we have accepted the ritualized cult of medicine, if I can call it that. Um, you know, Nick Gonzalez, who is my, um, my mentor, he said, you know, medicine is the last remaining religion on the planet. Mm. And I think he was speaking to how so many other religions have not really captured the uh, generational attention of, you know, the millennials and beyond, because there's a feeling for what's bereft. Uh, potentially and and the limited offerings but how medicine remains that religion you know with its secret language and its secret clothing or its uh, you know uh, specialized clothing and um, the temples and all the rest right it really does fit a criteria and the in insistence on you know monotheistic dominance right because it's never the case that you're presented with conventional medicine as one of the options you're presented with conventional medicine as the option right. and if you seek anything else you are in alternative realms, like even semantically, right? It's, it's sort of, it's kind of baked in. So, you know, if we think about gynecology, we think about, you know, women who have, I'll speak for myself, you know, I had, I was on birth control for 12 years, had no understanding of the nature of my bodily rhythms, right? Uh, let alone how those connect me to the natural world, how to understand my own uh, fluctuating energy so that I could begin to navigate my own life with a degree of mastery, um, how to intuitively sense when, you know, what the symptoms in my body, anything from urinary burning to, you know, breast tenderness or whatever, what they were a reflection of. This is a level of intuition that is available to all of us, but instead, you know, we're often presenting to a clinical setting with, you know, a, a male MD, um, because most gynecologists are male MDs and offering up our most intimate, you know, orifices to this stranger to tell us about our body. Like if you kind of zoom out, you're like, wow, we, this, that's interesting. Right? Like that, we've, <laughs> when you we've, float above yourself in the stirrups, you're like, how is this right? happening? To like me? something is wrong. Who, who likes going to the gynecologist? Something feels fundamentally wrong right there. And so how can we honor that feeling and begin to relume um, the, the ancient wisdom and natural wisdom, but primarily the intuitive wisdom um, that is available. And it is a process of accessing that. However, the process becomes far easier when you learn to read a yes and no in your body 
because your body has, you know, you've calmed inflammation, you've balanced blood sugar, you've replaced, you know, missing micronutrients, you've, you know, eliminated medications that are taxing your detox pathways. Once you have engaged at that level of what I call chopping wood and carrying water, all of this becomes easier. All of this begins to flow. And I have been told time and time and time and time again, that the result of coming into one's body on that level um, feels like finally being myself, right? I can't tell you how many times I heard that before I, I noticed the pattern, you know, that that's ultimately what we want to feel. We want to feel comfortable in our own skin and we want to feel in a truce, <laughs> you know, with our body organism. And we ultimately want to feel a degree of mastery over our life experience, which is a body you know, mind and, and soul level, um, process. But I do think there's an order of operations and I think it begins, um, with setting the mind frame of reclamation, right? Oh, I like and, that reclamation. Re yeah. And resolution of, of victim stories. So where in your life, take an inventory, you know, where in your life are you saying poor me and are you blaming and judging someone else for what they are inducing in you? <laughs> right? Because even if you're quote unquote, right, you're right about being wronged corresponds with a nervous system state that will keep you forever arrested in fight or flight. So how can you liberate yourself either through, you know, uh, personal responsibility where you say only I can hurt me. Right. And there must be something I'm bringing to the table and I'm going to work on that. Right or whether it's from self-compassion, right? So where you don't need it to come from someone else because you, you orient towards yourself and your tender parts um, from this place of self-soothing, right? Or whether it's from an intention to really empower yourself through your language and to stop complaining and to begin to focus on the things that you can control. And the things that you can control are, you know, your breathing, right? So a meditation or con uh, contemplative practice, you can control the products that you buy. So how can you learn how to lighten your toxicant burden through conscious consumerism? Um, you can control what you put in your mouth, right? So how can you, how can you begin to educate yourself around the power of nutrition to reprogram your physiology? Uh, and then you can begin to engage with the storying, right? So the thoughts, the storying, um, because it's the story that you're telling about what's happening on an emotional level that is causing suffering. The emotions themselves, for the most part in, in my belief system, just want up and out, right? They yeah. want to be felt. And it's the storying around that, the victim storying that arrests us in a state of, um, child or adolescent psychological development. And it's only when we, uh, take this power back from all the places we've given it, including our, our parents, right. As adults. And we begin to, uh, see, you know, the kind of, um, paradox and uncertainty and the, the mixed nature of everything. We, we develop an intimacy and a comfort with that, that everything begins to feel safer 
in our world. And, you know, psychologically, this is referred to as the mixed object, right? So when I can see somebody who I feel harmed me um, as having both good qualities and bad qualities, not generally, but even in that specific instance, it might seem like I'm, I'm sacrificing something of myself or my truth that I need to feel strong. But what's being sacrificed is my comfortable uh, association with the familiar victim story. Right. right. And instead, what's being adopted is a kind of adult perspective um, that is really consistent with sovereignty and a deep experience of neurological safety. So, you know, it starts with these kind of small steps and then it becomes this grand process where um, you you develop access to the highs and the lows, you know, the the joy, the actual joy that I experience in my life periodically now um, I never felt for one minute in my entire adult life yeah. when I was trying to keep within the narrow bounds of, you know, n not suffering and, um, you know, never even knowing that there was anything beyond basic uh, contentment available to me. And my anxiety and vigilance were the programs that kept those boundaries really strong, right? My programs. And so I, uh, I found that my willingness to, as Jung would say, uh, experience legitimate suffering <laughs> is commensurate with the opportunities that I have to open my heart to joy, which I think would otherwise um, have been, and in ways can still be, one of the most um, seemingly terrifying emotional states uh, to enter because it's so different from happiness or excitedness. Um, it's a feeling of dissolution of the ego. And I think that we need to get to a point of understanding that so much of what we believe is illusory, if it suggests that we are fundamentally separate, right, from our lived environment or from each other, uh, we have to kind of grok that in order to be able to tolerate an expansive emotion, exalted emotion that really dissolves everything by your heart, you know? And so this is kind of the promise of what's on the other end. Um, and it's like life becomes this magic carpet ride when you are committed to resolving your victimhood um, and seeing the sacredness and, you know, design of everything around you. Um, you know, I like to say that suffering ends where meaning begins. So how can you rededicate yourself all the time to finding the meaning in what's happening. It's, it's just a more beautiful way to live ultimately. Yeah. I love it. Well, Dr. Brogan, thank you so much. Your new book, Own Yourself is out now available where all the books are sold. And thank you so much for your work and a mind of your own um, really changed my life uh, several years ago. So thank you for that. Um, one more question. This podcast is called the same 24 hours, meaning we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do in those 24 hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. So I like to ask my guest, what is something that you do in your 24 hours that you do on a consistent basis that makes your life better? Wow. Well, I probably have a different answer than I had two years ago. <laughs> I won't hold you to of, it. <laughs> yeah. The ways in which I have reprioritized um, and developed the strength, I should say, to reprioritize elements of my life. And so at this point, it's dance, actually. Oh, wow. um, I schedule my entire week around my dance classes and I, you know, I do a variety of styles from, you know, hip hop to Latin. Um, and it is the practice that keeps me in that place of soft receptivity that otherwise 
um, gets kind of shelled over by my habits of um, self-protection and defense. And so it has been one of the more um, joy permissive uh, experiences of my life to just have that be my, you know, what I wake up to every day. Oh, I love that. So I, I can't dance at all and I have no rhythm in my daughter. Yes, you is, can. Is, well, yes, I hate yeah. when people say that. <laughs> but you my have, daughter does TikTok yeah. all the time. She does that stupid app. Where she, I know, I know YouTube. about it. And so she said, mom, I'm going to teach you how to do some moves. And we've been doing some TikToks and I'm having more fun. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I might be able to dance. But so it, it's, it's like, so I can't, I cannot let you walk away with that. <laughs> because it's so, especially I think for women, although I, you know, I could be, um, unnecessarily, uh, biased in that, in that realm. But I think that it is a non-negotiable element of our embodiment, uh, and, and our reclamation of sensuality and all of the things that we actually gift the world just through being mm-hmm. right. And so, so I think that dance is essential. And so many women are walking around the world thinking that they can't dance because they can't do some high level choreography with some like, you know, Manhattan trained hip hop artist or whatever. <laughs> and so, you know, what I would suggest is, um, not that you asked when I'm giving unsolicited <laughs> advice, what I would suggest is to find, um, ecstatic dance in your area, which is, um, you know, I'm blessed to have uh, people here in Miami and some of our dearest friends who have their own brand, uh, ritual experiences of ecstatic dance, and it's just so powerful. However, there is a almost like, I don't know what you would call it, a franchise or something called Five Rhythms, um, or you could even just search for ecstatic dance. And it's the kind, it, there's no choreography, there's no teacher, there's nothing to do right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a practice of going inward. Most people have their eyes closed most of the time. Um, sometimes the lights are dim and just beginning to let like feel music and let it move your body. Yeah. Like you can look super weird. You can look super hot. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. And that that is a, it's a form of therapy that I think really disentangles dance from performance. Um, and, uh, I just think it's, it's one of the more healing methodologies available. Well, I have spent um, almost 40 years of my life not being in my body. So the last couple of years, I'm learning to be in it. And Beautiful. so dancing is the next frontier that I, I've. And so when I said, well, I can't dance, that's that's the story. <laughs> I know. I've never been in my body. Like I was a floating head until about. Two You're not ago. alone. <laughs> so, you are not alone. Not at all. But I think that sounds like fun. So I'll check it awesome. out. But thank awesome. you so much for your time. Total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.